0: Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nickel. We are in the life in living time. We left off with, we cannot shoot into time, no bullet can shoot the life, and no act of self-destruction can destroy the life. This is good news for some people and bad news for people who are trying to commit suicide. <laughs> who think they're just going to end it because you can't. And that's terrible realization after you go through the whole thing. And then you go, oh, wait, I'm still here. But here isn't here, it's just here. here. So we'll start where we left off then. No man, no one, can change himself beyond his life. Hereafter, beyond his time, but only within his life. So clearly you can't alter the life, but you can alter yourself within the life. His attainment of unity is something that must belong to his life, this life, that is, himself. And if we can equate unity and eternal life, it is something that cannot lie in some tomorrow or hereafter beyond a man's life. Its possibilities belong to us now, to something we have to do now. It is this life that must be worked upon, be made more real, by separating the false by insight. Now, the idea of unity is not to be taken negatively. Although it is often connected with the process of getting free from certain things in oneself, it is also anciently as often connected with the idea of growth, through which the different sides of man are brought into balance. This is such a good point, I'd like to talk about it a little bit, because we talk a lot about death to self, and people take that negatively. Because they think that the self is this wonderful thing. The self is a god. And so to part with the self, it's like that is a death in and of itself. Just the idea of parting with yourself. Losing your identity. Having a bigger identity makes no sense to people at all. Losing your identity is the only thing that they can think about. Not gaining something more. They think about losing. And so the idea is often taken negatively because people take it negatively. Not because it is negative. And that's just the way it is. But he is absolutely right. This idea of growth, through which the different sides of man are brought into balance, is a much more powerful idea. It's what I talk about more, even, than death to self. There's only one reason for the self to go, and it doesn't really go. It goes with you, but it comes with you in a subservient position. Instead of being the ruler of you, it serves the essential you. Plato describes this harmony in terms of justice, that is, a just balance and adjusting. In the New Testament, the same word is rendered righteous. Plato says, but in reality, justice was such as we were describing, being concerned not with the outer man, but the inward, which is the true concernment of man. This is where everybody in this world goes off. We think that the true concern of our life is this outside thing. And so we spend all this money and time and energy on the shell, and all that belongs to the shell. So we dress it up, we get plastic surgery, we get our hair done, we go on and on and on and exercise all this stuff for the outer. But the true concernment of man is the inward. For the just man does not permit the several elements to interfere with one another, or any of them to do the work of others. He sets in order his own life, and is his own master, and his own law, and at peace with himself. And when he has bound together the three principles within him, which may be compared to the higher, lower, and middle notes of the scale, and the intervening intervals, when he has bound them together and is no longer many, but has become one entirely temperate and perfectly adjusted nature, then he proceeds to act, if he has to act, whether in a matter of property, or the treatment of the body, or in some affair of politics or private business, always thinking and calling that which preserves and cooperates with the harmonious condition, just and good action, and the knowledge that presides over it, wisdom. And that which at any time impairs this condition, he will call unjust action, and the opinion which presides over it, ignorance. That comes from Plato's Republic, Book 4, a real change in the internal state is meant not an external modification of conduct to be seen of men. This seems like such an obvious thing. We so often, in fact, I got an email from Lori the other day. And she says one of the things she always says. If she ever discovers something about herself that's unpleasant, she'll write me an email and says, It's time for this to stop. I need to work on not being this way or that way. And it's like, no. I wrote her back a long, you know, you've got to be careful writing to me. Because you always get more than you bargained for. You think you're just talking about one thing. And then what happens is I come along and I dig a little bit and find that what you're really talking about is a hundred other things that you didn't even know you were talking about. And that's a good thing if you want to develop. If you don't want to develop, it's a horrible thing because it makes you look bad. And you hate looking bad. And so, because you hate looking bad, because your life is about modifying your conduct to be seen of men. If that's what motivates you, then you're already screwed. I mean, you're just screwed. You got to get that out of the way. That's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. Getting that out of the way so that you can be who you really are. And you can't be a respecter of persons. You can't behave one way to one person and another way to another person. You have to be consistent. Or you're not true. If you're not true, you're not real. If you're not real, then you're false. And if you're false, well, then who am I talking to? And who are you talking to? And who should I ask? You know how sometimes I'll say, what is that? And you'll say, I don't know. And I say, well, who should I ask? And you never really know who. Well, I guess me. Yes, you. But see, the problem is you don't know which you to ask. You don't know which self because you're so fragmented. So a real change in the internal state is meant, not an external modification of conduct to be seen of men. So my whole thing with Lori was, look, your heart is what needs. A man speaks out of the fullness of his heart meaning a man or a woman for those of you who are nitpicky about that. And there are people who are, believe it or not, there are people who actually will throw the baby out with the bathwater just over that. Those people don't really want to develop. So it's just the same to me that they go out with the baby in the bathwater. I don't really care. Because they're not interested in development. They're interested in being right. And being right leads to one thing and only one thing. It leads to violence. You do violence to others and you do violence to yourself. You do violence to everybody around you by being right. You can't be right and not be violent. The only way to be right and not be violent is to be who you are. That way you're not right, you're just who you are. You're real. And when you're real, you don't have to be right. Because there's no right, there's no wrong, there are no apologies to be made, except when you're real and you have a real apology to make. Even real people make real mistakes. All we do now can be made of infinitely more consequence through additional interpretation. If rightly understood, the extension of the life in higher dimensions, with all the new thoughts and feelings that it can arouse, if its truth is perceived, can make us think far more distinctly about our present situation and in a way that makes everything and person more real. Now, you know this to be true from experience, that when you dig into some part of yourself and you have found, through observing yourself, you have found some truth, you know that from that moment on, You think differently about yourself. Everything is different. All the meaning of you is different because you know more of the truth about yourself. Most people never get that. They never get that chance. They never get the opportunity to see the truth about themselves. Not that they would consider it an opportunity. It's something that they eschew because, let's face it, who wants to know what dirty, rotten scoundrels they are? Who wants to know that? People don't want to know that. And when you find out, it can be tragic, it can be very disheartening, discouraging. So he says, for we can then understand that it is about our lives that we have to think, about all that enters and lies in our lives, about which we are always trying to think, but wrongly, owing to the illusion of passing time in the sense of the life being only in the present. We've talked about this quite a bit, about this whole idea of passing time and thinking that our life is right now and that what is to come does not exist, and what is past is already gone, so it does not exist either. And we understand the idea that life is. The past is, not was. The future is, not will be. Let's approach some illustrations of experiencing of the life extended in time that have been put on record. They're not remarkable at first sight, partly because inner experiences cannot be easily described. Yet, if we really begin to think about their meaning, they are remarkable. They serve to show that all the life can be undoubtedly felt. Your past, your present, and your future can be felt all at once. It is quite wrong and far too easy to think of them merely as curious, abnormal, or pathological. While the unification of the life as one whole, or the sense of the external existence of I, is not illustrated by them, the experience of the living existence of all the length, all the time, of the life is shown. So here we go. In an essay on time and space, Taylor Lewis says that we have all heard of well-attested cases in which the entire past, even to its most minute events, have flashed upon the soul in the dying moments, or during some brief period of imminent danger, arousing the spirit to a preternatural energy. If there be truth in such experiences, then no former exercise or motion of the soul is ever lost. So if it is true that someone at the point of death can see his entire life pass before his eyes in a matter of seconds or nanoseconds, in incredible detail, and he can live it all in that amount of time, then what he's saying is, if there's any truth in that, no form or exercise or motion of the soul is ever lost. Anything that the soul ever experienced or did is not lost. It's there. He points out that since such experiences undoubtedly happen, it means that all the moments of our lives can be regarded as present. They belong to us still, just as much as our present thought or our present sensation, and at some period may start up again, causing us actually to realize the conception of Boethius, or whatever his name is, B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S, you can have it any way you like it, which now appears only as a scholastic subtlety, a whole life ever in one, carrying with it a consciousness of its whole abiding presence in every moment of its existence. So that means that it is possible, he's saying is it's possible, to carry your whole life as present, all that is, all that is, and all that is. So now, then, and then. Either side of now. That we have always believed to be non-existent. Taylor Lewis' article on time and space. But I don't think that the feeling of the life as one integrated whole could ever be connected with an experience of the extension of all the life and time. Because it would necessarily be of a different order. A summing up of parts. The life is certainly experienced under special conditions as stretched out in consciousness throughout its entire length. All the incidents can be re-experienced, relived in an actual sense, difficult to describe, but not merely as memory. But the feeling of the unity of the life gathered into one simultaneous whole cannot be the same thing. For the experience of oneness, which is associated with the feeling of eternity, is not merely an expansion of consciousness through the time dimension of the life, in which the reality of all the life is unquestionably felt, but another kind of consciousness, similar rather to that described by Tennyson. It is possible to understand that whatever is experienced in separate parts in succession may be summed up, at another level of reality, into a whole or simultaneous form. The experience of this whole and simultaneous form will not be commensurable with the running experience of separate parts. Do you understand this? Feeling the whole thing all at once right now, boom, is not the same thing as having it all unfold in front of you in succession. Like a film. It would be like experiencing the entire film, sound, picture, movement, everything, right now all at once. So let's say you have a 90-minute film. To be able to experience the entire thing, boom, just like that. Not in succession, but boom, the whole thing. That's what he's talking about. You've got to admit, that's a different state of consciousness. You go to the movies, and you're in a different state of consciousness. You sit there for the 90 minutes, and it goes on, and you're there, and you're there, and you're there, and you're there. And what's gone is back on that reel, and what's not come yet is still on the other reel. So, this is different. If our consciousness expands a long time, we will see and know our life in some sort of series, as we knew it, but not as gathered together into a new synthesis. Our ordinary memory makes us think that the past has no living existence. It's memory. But in the following experiences, there is no way of understanding them save by admitting that the past has a reality that we do not suspect some substantial living existence. The past is lived, entered. Not exactly again, for it's always there. Something transcending memory is experienced. All is. Nothing is lost. What was long ago forgotten appears. The childhood is. And all the faces that belong to it, the early books, are. The fragments of poetry, the stories, the early scenes, the houses, gardens, the days themselves. In one example it said, This and most of the following examples will be found in Forbes Winslow's Obscure Diseases of the Mind, 1860. The scenes of his early life were, in their minutest particulars, revived. He was taken to the cottage in which he was born, interchanged tokens of affection with his parents, gambled once more with the companions of his childhood on the village green. He renewed acquaintances with the friends of his school days, the remembrance of faces known when a child was restored. Every trifling and minute circumstance connected with his past life was presented to him. All this happened in the few moments during the struggle with death from asphyxiation. The language of memory is used in such descriptions, but they are not cases of memory as we know it. You do realize that that's not the way your memory works. Okay, I'm getting this blank look from this side of the room, and a nod from that side, so I'm going to leave that side there. You got it now? No. You don't. Yeah, you have to stay here. You have to stay here. This is too intense to be somewhere else and try and pick it up later. Won't happen. You have to be here now. And if you don't get it, then you need to say, wait, stop. I don't get it. Could you go over that again? I can happily. I will. I can and I will. So we're talking about the scenes of his early life wherein their minutest particulars revived. He was taken to the cottage in which he was born, interchanged tokens of affection with his parents, gambled once more with the companions of his childhood on the village green, renewed acquaintances with the friends of his school days, the remembrance of faces known when a child was restored. Every trifling and minute circumstance connected with his past life was presented to him. All this happened in a few moments during the struggle with death from asphyxiation. That isn't memory. You know that your memory doesn't work like that. It can't be called memory as we know it. It is not recollection, remembrance, or reminiscence. It is actually being present in the past. It is the experience of the presence of the past. We have no language for this, because for us the past doesn't exist. So all we can do is remember it, reminisce, daydream, all those other things that we say we do. Another example. Under the pressure of great feeling, the soul lives with a rapidity and intensity which disturb all its usual relation to time. It once happened to me to assist at the recovery of a man who nearly forfeited his life while bathing. He had sunk the last time, and there was difficulty in getting him to land and still greater difficulty in restoring him. He said that the time had seemed to him of very great duration. He had lost the standard of the work of time. So, our standard of the work of time and how time works. He had lost that. He had lived his whole past over again. He had not epitomized it. He had repeated it as it seemed to him in detail and with the greatest deliberation. He had great difficulty in understanding that he had only been in the water a few minutes. During these intenser moments of existence, the life of the soul has no sort of relation to what we call time certainly not to what we call time, but to time itself. We cannot call this memory, nor can we understand it, unless we think of ourselves as at least four-dimensional beings. Memory epitomizes. It makes a summary or abstract of the past and shows it as the past always, as something that was. In the above case, the life is restored at present. All ordinary relationship to time was obliterated, All present momented psychology, his soul no longer conscious at that moment of world time in which the visible three-dimensional outer sense appears to the senses, ceased to share with others the common point of material existence called by us the present. So while he was off wherever he was, while he was drowning, he was in his past living it, he had no connection with our standard of keeping time, the present moment. Where did it go? What direction did it find in which to travel? It didn't pass into non-entity, nothingness, nor into some tomorrow or hereafter. It passed into the dimension of its own life, which the man only knew until then as intermittent, past-colored memory. It passed into the life itself, into the man's time, not forward into time beyond. It's there. On either side of this moment, your life is And you are only aware of this sliver of your life. But the rest of it is fully operational right now. One writer says, The hints of scripture point to memory as the chief energy of the soul under the new conditions of his existence, that is, at death. The words of Abraham to the rich man in Hades were, "Son, Remember, he was to survey the whole extent of that life in which he had received his good things and had cared for little or nothing else and these words at least fall in with some of the known facts of consciousness in this life. To many it is said, notably, to those who have been in the peril of sudden death by drowning, and have, as it were, tasted its experiences, there comes, as in a moment of time, the unrolling of the scroll of their whole past lives. Their memory acts with a new intensity, and with an almost inconceivable rapidity. It becomes, to borrow a phrase from the dream of Serontius, the standard of its own chronology. Even under the conditions of a calmer death, we note something of the same kind. The mind goes back to the remotest past of its life, and the scenes of childhood and the old familiar faces come back with a long-vanished distinctness. It is almost inconceivable that such retrospect should not affect the soul in which there is a capacity for growth. In other words, people who have near-death experiences It's almost inconceivable that experience won't make a difference in a soul that's capable of growth. As I've mentioned a number of times, I had a near-death experience when I was 19. Near-death experience, to me, only means I'm back. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm back. Back from where? Well, back from nowhere. Back from a state of consciousness. Back from visiting some portion of my life that I had not come to yet as what I know myself to be now. For a lot of people, I guess that's just double talk. But for a lot of people, they will say, yep, I know what that is, because they've been there. And the people who've been there, or the people who can conceive of there, are really the only people I care to talk to anyway. I don't really care to convince anyone or to sell anybody. I just don't care. You can believe it or not believe it. It just doesn't matter to me at all. All I know is it altered the course of my life. I could never go back to, once you know something, you can't go back. Once you know it, once it becomes yours, there's no going back. There's no going back. You are changed forever because that has been added to you and it is yours and it will be yours forever. That was written by E.H. Plumtray, D.D., The Spirits in Prison, 1885. Certainly such memory could not but change our lives. So he's really not talking about memories, but it's not memory. It's higher space apprehended. If such consciousness of the life entered into every moment of our existence, nothing could remain the same. And this is precisely the exercise the Hermetic writers advises. Yesterday is, tomorrow is, now is. It all is, it all exists right now. It is just because we do not have this kind of memory, just because our memory is very limited and largely invented, that we again and again act in the same way and are again and again in those recurring momentary eyes of which Ospensky speaks. The power of life is so strong, the hypnotism of the present moment so intense, the outer scene pouring in upon us through the senses so vivid that we cannot remember. We cannot remember ourselves. We cannot remember ourselves. This is the most tragic thing about us, that we can't remember ourselves, and we are doomed to repeat the same stupid, idiotic things over and over and over again, because the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Why? Because we can't remember ourselves. And which of us ever thinks that he is not merely this visible body in the present moment of time, but something else in higher dimensions? I know I do not near enough but i know i do i once asked dr holmes that's oliver wendell holmes toward the end of his life the question what is a man he answered without hesitation a series of states of consciousness the word series introduces the element of time the relation of which to states of consciousness is empirical and not essential Broadly speaking, certain states of consciousness associated directly or indirectly with matter occur in sequence in everyday human experience. So you have all the things that have to do with tables and chairs and cars and buses and planes and houses and people. That's matter, and that occurs in sequence in everyday human experience. But the same states may occur simultaneously under exceptional circumstances. It's well known that in the sudden presence of imminent and apparently certain death, the accumulated states of consciousness of a lifetime sometimes revive simultaneously in a single flash. The events of the whole past are seen down to the most minute and remote details, like a landscape under a flash of lightning. Dr. Holmes himself had had this experience on one occasion, just before losing consciousness altogether while drowning, and the memory of the occurrence persisted after resuscitation. Another example, from the moment that all exertion had ceased, a calm feeling of the most perfect tranquility superseded the previous tumultuous sensations. Though the senses were deadened, not so the mind. Now, I have had that experience, where there came a moment of just complete, absolute, total surrender, and then everything was different. A calm feeling of the most perfect tranquility superseded the previous tumultuous sensations. Though the senses were deadened, not so the mind. So I really couldn't feel my body. I really could care less about my body and even know where my body was. All I knew is where my consciousness was, what it was. What it was like to be apart from a body. What it was like to be apart from a body. It's the mind's activity seemed to be invigorated in a ratio which defied description, for thought rose after thought with a rapidity of succession that is not only indescribable but probably inconceivable by anyone who has not been in a similar situation. The event which had just occurred falling into the sea, the effect it would have on a most affectionate father and a thousand other circumstances minutely associated with home were the first series of reflections that occurred. Then they took a wider range, our last cruise, a former voyage, my school, and even all my boyish pursuits and adventures. Thus traveling backwards, every past incident of my life seemed to glance across my recollection in retrograde succession. Not, however, in mere outline, but the picture filled up with every minute and collateral feature. In short, the whole period of my existence seemed to be placed before me in a kind of panoramic view Indeed, many trifling events, which had been long forgotten, then crowded into my imagination, and with the character of my recent familiarity. The length of time that was occupied by this deluge of ideas, or rather the shortness of time into which they were condensed, I cannot now state with precision, yet certainly two minutes could not have elapsed from the moment of suffocation to that of my being hauled up. There are so many stories like this. So many people tell this story that it's part of our common language now. His whole life flashed before him in connection with his restoration of the past, the power of smell to revive former scenes must not be forgotten and Back in the early '70s, I recall the Japanese were working on a nasal spray that would enhance memory because they had figured out that smell was something that triggered memory almost well better than almost better than anything else, except drowning. but you don't want to <laughs> you probably probably better off just smelling things and drowning though I'd recommend. For odors have an extraordinary and inexplicable power of spontaneously and suddenly presenting a forgotten scene to the mind. And with such nearness to reality that we are translated bodily, being caught up by the Spirit, as it were, like St. Philip, to be placed once more in the midst of the old past life where we live the moment over again with the full chord of its emotions vibrating in ourselves and startling our consciences. There are, it is true, certain sounds which wield the same miraculous power over our being, but I do not think they operate in this way so frequently, as do smells. That was D. McKenzie, M.D., Aromatics. Paul Laire, in one of his poems, referred to the grain of incense which restores the past. The use of incense may have been originally connected with this power of odors to bring the living past into consciousness. You know, it's just so funny. The things that we have forgotten, modern man has forgotten, it's astounding. We have left so much good stuff on the back burner and picked up trash to replace it with. For example, there were no pharmaceutical companies a thousand years ago. People knew what plants were for. They knew how to remedy things. Now, the pharmaceutical companies know what plants are for, too. They go and they get them, and then they synthesize whatever it is the active ingredient is. They synthesize it, and they pump your body full of that crap, and then give you 10 other synthesized drugs along with it to counter it, and do this, and do that. So they end up with these drug cocktails. And you look at elderly people, it's astounding to me how many drugs they're on. It's just astounding. Every time I go in for a checkup or something, they say, well, you know, what drugs are you on? I said, none. So you're not on any heart a blood pressure? No. Will you have anything acumidin to thin your blood? No. Will you take an aspirin every day? No. Well then how come your blood pressure's so good? I eat right and I exercise. Duh What's that? What is eating right and exercising? We're modern, we don't need that. We got pills for everything. I'm gonna start ranting here if I'm not careful. <laughs> it's too late, isn't it? <laughs> I'll be darned. You know what? It doesn't put my blood pressure up a tick to rant. Not a tick, nothing at all. It does nothing to me. Because the ranting only affects you, it doesn't affect me. I'm just speaking my mind. You're the one resisting it. And the resistance is what causes high blood pressure. You do know that, right? Yes. Okay. The high blood pressure doesn't come from non resistance, it comes from resistance. It comes from the heart not being able to pump the blood to where it needs to go because of resistance. Whether that be smaller contracted veins and arteries or whatever that resistance is your body's contracted and you're resisting and or the channels are being restricted in some way other than from the outside, but from the inside there's buildup of plaque and things of that description and that's what causes it. So resistance is a terrible thing. The whole idea is to surrender to life. You can't surrender to life that you don't trust and you can't surrender to life that's not eternal. If you try and surrender to a life that's not eternal, you'll never be able to do it. You'll never be able to do it. How could you trust it? We know that all living tissue is constantly undergoing changes. You know that every cell in your body is completely changed every seven years. There's not one cell in your body that was the same after seven years. There is a continual assimilation and elimination, a constant interchange between cell, blood, and lymph. The material substance of the brain cell is always being built up anew by this interchange. Let's face the question. Do we really imagine that the past is coiled up in the matter of these three-dimensional brain cells that are undergoing such constant changes? The trouble is that we never face such questions. We don't want to face them. Even if we were satisfied that the ordinary memory could be explained solely on a physiological basis. How could we understand the restoration of the entire life as shown in the above examples? The psyche must be more dimensioned than the physiological brain. The brain can be regarded as reflecting at any one moment a small part of the psyche. And if the brain is injured, the reflection will necessarily be distorted. But we cannot limit the psyche to three-dimensional space. The psychic life is in higher space, and its point of communication with the visible world at a given moment is through the brain. I will go further and say the soul, the psyche, precipitates the brain. It is the soul that precipitates the body. It builds, precipitates the body. Without the soul, no body could exist. We cannot explain the psychic life of man merely by the study of the three-dimensional brain. Thought is not in apprehended space. You can't see thought... You may see the footprints of thought. Somebody had an idea about a house, and they put that all on paper, and then they gave that to the builders, and the builders translated it into this. So this, in a sense, is a footprint of thought, but it's not thought, because thought is not in apprehended space. We cannot explain the restoration of the past in terms of the brain alone. This inner memory in which there is such wealth of detail must have another explanation. And since we have run out of time, we're not going to get to that other explanation tonight. We're going to have to wait until the next time to get to that other explanation, which is fine, because that'll give you lots of things to think about between now and then. And I want you to do just that. I want you to exercise your mind. I want you to think about these things. I want you to try and expand your consciousness to where you can begin to think of time as this huge existing thing and that your life, past, present, and future, is all in that existing. Right now, right now, right now, right now. It's all there. That's what I want you to think about. And keep thinking about it as often as you can. Whenever you can remember yourself, which I realize isn't going to be very often, but every once in a while you may get help.